When I was in elementary school at Butte View Elementary, boy, many years ago, the fourth grade is when we moved into to Butte View. Brand new school, everything sparkling clean and wonderful and looks good and, and those kind of things. But, uh, you know, my, one of my favorite things to do in school was when they showed a film in class. Remember that? And we would go to the, the new stage area in the multi-purpose room, and they would close the curtain, and that would be the darkest place where we'd show the, the film, anything to get out of class. But I really liked the films, especially if they were in color. Because my family didn't have a color TV till I was in college. You guys don't know how blessed you are with, with all the color and those kind of things today. And uh, so the only place I could see color was in, in movies or films was the Ideal Theater downtown, which is now the, the Frontier Cinema, or, uh, or the class film, if it was in color. And the films that I enjoyed the most were produced by the Moody Science Institute. Anybody remember those Moody Science films? It was affiliated with Moody Bible Institute, and the films promoted science from a God-is-creator biblical point of view, and they were shown in public schools all across the nation, proving and showing that God is the creator. That, that tells us how much things have changed in our own country over the years. And I remember watching one film, in color of course, which showed that remarkable process of a caterpillar transformed into a butterfly. Scientists refer to this as the, prophecy, pro, the process of metamorphosis. And the story began with a very hungry caterpillar hatching from an egg. And the caterpillar, which is more scientifically known or termed as a larva, begins stuffing itself with leaves. And it, it grows plumper and, and grows longer and has a series of molts in which it sheds its skin and gets bigger and fatter and plumper. And, and one day the caterpillar stops eating. He hangs upside down from a twig and he spins himself into a shiny chrysalis. And within its protective casing of the chrysalis, the caterpillar radically transforms its body. It eventually emerges as a, a beautiful butterfly. And the emerging butterfly has little, if any, resemblance to the fuzzy caterpillar <laughs> that went into the, and became the chrysalis. And, and there's this remarkable transformation, a metamorphosis. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul used the verb form of the noun metamorphosis to describe the dramatic prospect of change as a Christian. He wrote in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The Greek word there is metamorphosis. Be metamorphosed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Actually, science uh, got the word metamorphosis from the Greek language, which the New Testament was written. And so science has really borrowed that term from the Greek, the Greek language, metamorphosis. And God's word pictures the transformation of a believer so complete, so astounding, that for centuries Christianity has used the word metamorphosis as a symbol of the resurrection life we as believers actually experience in Jesus Christ. Metamorphosis speaks of real change. It's a real change in attitude, how we think. It's a real change in character. 
It's a real change in spiritual knowledge. It's a real change in, in ethic, how we act. It's a real change in the way we relate to other people. And because of that change, we could honestly say that who we are in Christ has little resemblance or should have little resemblance to who we were before we came to Christ. An astounding metamorphosis has taken place. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the 8th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 8, the 29th verse. After Paul assures us with that great promise that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us what God's goal is for every Christian. What is God's goal for your life? Have you ever thought of that? What does he want to see in you and with your life? Uh, what does God want to accomplish in you and through you for his glory? And what does he want the end result to be? In Romans 8.29, Paul uses a word that's closely related to the word metamorphosis. He chose here the word sumorphos. Sumorphos and metamorphos, metamorphosis contain the same root word, morphe. Morphe, it means form. Sumorphos means having the same form as another, the same form as something else. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, sumorphos, to take the same form as another. And what is that form? What is the form that the believer in Jesus Christ is supposed to take to be conformed, sumorphos? And he tells us here, Sumorphos to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's goal for you as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, is to take you and make you the same form as his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul taught here that before time began, began, God chose to save believers so that they might come to have the same form as his son. And this is, expresses the glorious goal of Christ's likeness, of becoming like Jesus Christ, becoming like Jesus in our actions, in our behavior, in our thinking, in our, in our motivations, in our compassion, in our love, in our, our service to others. It's everything that it means to be conformed to the image of the Savior. It's that extraordinary prospect, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we might be progressively transformed from glory to glory, from one glory to another, into the image of Jesus Christ. Now the problem is, this kind of remarkable metamorphosis doesn't take, doesn't take place automatically. It is true that it is the Holy Spirit who transforms us more and more into Christ's image, we can't change ourselves. We don't have that, that capability. It's a work that only God can do in us. But there are a multitude of ways that we can resist or we can fail to participate in what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in our lives in making us more like Christ. And then we lack the transformation that God has for us. You might remember, I can't remember how far back it was, but I mentioned an animate, animated movie called A Bug's Life. Any of you seen that? 
That, that, that was, that's really one of my favorite movies, and I just love it. You know, the movie uh, favored a lovable, plump caterpillar by the name of Heimlich. Remember Heimlich? Heimlich had a winsome, smiling, bubbly personality. And Heimlich, along with some other insect members of a flea circus, experienced several high-risk adventures together. And since the caterpillar was unable to fly, like most of the other insects in the flea circus, a large dung beetle transported Heimlich to each new challenge, like a helicopter dangling its cargo. And weary of being carried all the time, Heimlich dreamed of becoming what he called a beautiful butterfly when everything will be better. And after bravely saving an ant colony from some grasshopper thugs, the insects of the flea circus spent the winter with the ants. Now at harvest time, the hero insects pulled up their stakes and they're getting ready to head out of town. And as they were leaving, one of the bugs cried out, we forgot Heimlich. And Heimlich shouted from within his chrysalis, I'm finished, finally, I'm a beautiful butterfly. And he emerged from his shell and plopped to the ground with the same familiar chubby body that he'd gone into the chrysalis with. And he twisted his head and he gazed back at two small pink lumps on his back. And with a joyful grunt, he popped out two little tiny wings which were remarkably incapable of flight. And he says, oh, my wings, they're so beautiful. And two large flying insects grabbed Heimlich, one at each end, and, and lifted up into the air just a little ways. And he looked down and said to everybody, oh, you're so small from up here. And he was only about that far off the ground. And one of the bugs said to the dangling caterpillar, you'd better start flying. And he said, I am flying. And then he said, Auf Wiedersehen. And his friends airlifted him away, remarkably unchanged, to face new adventures. And I thought about this. Could Heimlich's experience be a parable of the Christian life that's so common in America today? As believers in Jesus Christ, we seem inclined to face adventures and challenges with the same kind of inadequate transformation as Heimlich's. We leave each adventure remarkably unchanged. We, we worship. We put in a joyful effort. We appear lovable enough. But we do we really experience the kind of life change that God intends for each one of us? Do we share in the beautiful Christian life in a way that brings forth a metamorphosis? Or when we worship or study God's word or fellowship together, do we pretty much leave the same as when we came in? remarkably unchanged and unsuited to face the next great adventure in the Christian life. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, after urging us in verse 1 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship, Paul shows us that there's something in the way. There's something that hinders the transformation into the likeness of Christ. There's something like that in Heimlich that prevents the beautiful transformation. And that hindrance is our tendency to be conformed to the world. In verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world. 
Now, I'm going to throw a lot of Greek words at you today, but it's important to understand these words because they have to do with change and, and all with a certain kind of change. The, the word translated conformed here, do not be conformed to the world, is the Greek word suskimatizo, suskimatizo. Won't be on the test, don't worry about that. But the word carries the basic idea of taking a form, taking a particular shape, and the word is used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed, do not be suskimatizo to the former lust that were yours in ignorance. Don't be conformed to those former lusts that you used to have before you became a Christian. Don't conform yourself to these former lusts. And suskimatizo, conform, refers to a conformity that's all external. It comes from the outside. It comes from the outside, and it only changes the appearance or what is the outside of a person. It doesn't change the inside. It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the inner person. And so it does not truly represent the believer's inner life, who the person really is inside as a new creation in Christ Jesus. The root word of the word skaskimatizo is the noun schema. Does that sound familiar? We get the word scheme from it, scheme. The Bible talks about the schemes of the devil. The word schema refers to craftiness. It refers to deceit. And that ought to tell us something about the, the dangers and the schemes that we can conform ourselves to. Uh, the schema re refers to a a pattern of life. It refers to a scheme. It, it refers to the act of assuming an outward expression, an outward pattern of life, a scheme that does not come from within. And so it's really putting on an act. It's a masquerade. And what Paul is saying here, look, don't masquerade as if you belong to the world. Don't masquerade wearing the spirit of this age, which is inconsistent with who you really are, is inconsistent with Christ living in you. Don't pattern yourself. Don't allow yourself to be continually patterned after the world in the spirit of this age, which is not connected to who you are on the inside. Don't wear the mask of the world. Now, it would seem inconceivable that as a Christian who is a new creation in Jesus Christ would want to wear the mask of the world to look like the world, to act like the world, in craftiness and deceit, to enjoy the entertainments of the world and to try to achieve the goals of the world. But we really do get sucked into it, don't we? We want to wear the clothes they wear. We want to drive the cars they drive. We run down to buy every new thing that comes along, especially if it's a smartphone or a big smart TV. We want to be part of the systems that come floating through. We want to have their entertainment. We want to stay up on their latest stuff. We can just get caught up in the whole thing. But I like the way that J.B. Phillips, in his well-known paraphrase, put it, it's Romans 12, 2. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. The world attempts to squeeze us into its own mold. The world tells you that who you are, for example, is just a product of your upbringing. You are the sum total of all your experiences. You are who you are because of how you were raised or, or how you have been treated, whether you've been treated badly or been treated well. 
The world tells you that who you are is because you have learned to look out for yourself or you have not learned to look out for yourself. The world tells you that you are who you are because you were born that way. Or that it was a mistake of nature and so you have to find your own identity. And in all these things, apart from Jesus Christ, the world is exactly right in what it says, isn't it? Because the world actively promotes and accurately describes the old man. That old sinful nature that we were born with and who you were before you were saved. And that's why the world is such a powerful shaper. Saski Gamadzo is, is succumbing to the pressure of the schemes that come from without to conform to them. And the verb conveys a thought or following a matter of life that is unstable. It's constantly changing. As the world changes from one thing to another, it, it's, it's constantly changing. It's, it's not enduring. And so Paul's prohibition is, is directed against a manner of life that does not come from nor is representative of who believers are in their inner being as the regenerated children of God. This age is the prevailing culture that leaves God out. It's a secular culture that is the world of fallen humanity. It is characterized by sin, it's characterized by suffering, it's characterized by estrangement from God. And to see this, all you have to do is watch TV for a minute or less and, and get on the internet for 30 seconds or less. And ask yourself, okay, where is God in all of this? Where is God? This age, this secular world that leaves God out is marked by self-will, it's marked by self-seeking, it's characterized by its disregard or open rebellion against God's will. The ruler is the devil, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan is in charge of this age. All the world's systems, whether they're political, economic, philosophical, whatever the system is, is controlled by Satan. Controlled by Satan. And therefore, conformity to this world inevitably hinders and perverts the spiritual transformation, which is the true goal of the Christian life. But here is the good news. Anyone who has received Jesus Christ is born from above, right? Born again. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Creature, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you have received Jesus Christ, you have the spirit of the living God living on the inside of you. You have been clothed with power from on high. If you have received Christ, you have been freed from your sin. That simply means you don't have to sin anymore. We still do because of our old nature and temptation and those kind of things, but you don't have to do it. If you have received Jesus Christ, you are no longer dead. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You have been made alive together with Christ. You have been raised with him. You have been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great description of what's going to happen, as we say, in heaven? God's going to spend eternity so that he can show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And that's all of that is why the Apostle Paul could command us as Christians 
Do not be conformed to this world. Just don't do it. Just say no. So what are we supposed to do? Romans chapter 12 verse 2 also tells us what we're supposed to do. If we're not to be conformed to the world, then what? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds need to be renewed. Our thinking needs to be changed. Why do our minds need to be renewed? It's simply because we still suffer from the terrible effects of sin and the fall. When Adam disobeyed God, we inherited a sin nature from Adam. We were born sinners. We sin. We sin. We still continue to sin. And that has trained our minds to think in particular ways and to think in ways that we do particular things. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 7, before we came to Christ, our minds were set on the flesh. And since our minds were set on the flesh, that was our mindset, we were hostile to God because we were trying to constantly do things that were really against God. That was our mindset. We didn't have a godly mindset. We had a fleshly mindset. That was our default thinking. Whenever we get into a situation or into a problem or whatever, our sin would make us, our minds, default to that, that setting. Our minds were set on the flesh and its desires. And Paul admonished the Ephesians in verse 22 of Romans chapter, or Ephesians chapter 4. He said that in reference to your former manner of life, your life before you came to Christ, he said, now you lay aside that old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and then he says, and you'll be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And since our minds need to be renewed, it implies that something is desperately wrong with our thinking. Our minds have been corrupted. And that is exactly right. Sin has left an evil impact upon our minds. So in, as believers, as new creations in Jesus Christ, how do we do this? How do we walk or live no longer as the Gentiles walk, as he said here, in the futility of their mind. How do we no longer live in ignorance and in darkness? Well, the Holy Spirit achieves our transformation, our metamorphosis to the image of Christ through the renewing of our perverted minds. And he uses God's word as the instrument of change. You might remember on that night before Jesus went to the cross and he prayed to the Father on behalf of believers, he said, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Sanctified means to make them holy. The word holy or sanctify means to be set apart, to be set apart for a, for a special use, to be set apart for God, for his use. Sanctify them, make them holy in truth. Well, what is this truth? He says, your word is truth. The truth is the truth of God's word. And so in other words, as believers, our mind should be so saturated with the truth of God's word that it can determine what God thinks about every question, every matter, every issue, every practice, every decision. What is God's mind on the matter? What does God think about that? And the phrase, by the renewing of the mind, shows us that the believer's renewal 
works at the center of our consciousness, at the center of our, our thinking. That it's a renewal that eventually makes the whole life new. It begins in the mind, then it works its way out. It starts in the mind. And so transformation doesn't start in our outward actions. Well, I'm just going to try to do better next time, and next time I'm in that situation, I'm not going to do that. I, I made that mistake this time. I'm not going to do it this time. And so we try to do kind of like a spiritual behavioral modification, that if we can do all the right stuff and, and learn from this and that and do the other thing and get it right, that that somehow is going to change our lives. That's going to change us on the inside. No, it's just the opposite. It begins in the mind, and it works out in the way that we live and how we act. In renewing our minds, the Holy Spirit works to transform the evil impact that sin has left on various aspects of the human mind. The transformation being wrought in the inner life, in our souls, the soul of the individual, will reveal itself through the body as the instrument of the soul. I like the way Albert Barnes put it in his notes on the New Testament. Christianity seeks to reign in the soul, and having its seat there, the external conduct and habits will be regulated accordingly. Put another way, you will do what you think, right? If you think that's okay to do it, you're going to do it. If you don't think that's okay to do it, then you're not going to do it. If you think you can get away with it, you'll do it every time <laughs> because we are what we think. It all starts in the mind and works out into the actions. Or as Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so is he. As he thinks within himself, that's the way he's going to act. That's what he's, he's going to do. And so this inward transformation of the believer's life really is the only effective preservative against this outward conformity to this present age. The only way that you will not conform to this age is when your mind is being renewed by God's word through his Holy Spirit. The renewed mind is a mind that is saturated. It is controlled by the word of God. I like the way that John MacArthur puts this. He says, do you spend as much time in the word of God as you do in the allurements of the world? What are your reflexes? Things of God? Have you set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth? I mean, when something happens in your life, is your involuntary response biblical? That's a renewed mind. A mind saturated with the word of God. A mind whose constant preoccupation is the word of God. The word of God. The word of God. The truth of God. It's that constant influx of the word of God that brings about the transformation to a renewed or renovated mind. So that a renovated mind then can be more readily, can more readily present the body to God. As a believer consciously recognizes his need for inner cleansing and the resultant renewal in daily conduct, and as he yields to the promptings of the spirit, he rejoices in the reality of God's inner work, producing the fruit of holiness in life. This inner transformation will increasingly express itself through the body and what he says and does and approves or rejects. And then Romans 12 too also expresses the glorious result of this transformation. Maybe kind of a, uh, uh, a surprising result. 
Romans 12, 2 again, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, so that, so that, and here is the result. Here is what happens. So that you will prove what the will of God is. Now, that's kind of an interesting result, isn't it? The renewing of our mind, saturating our minds with the word of God so that we may act appropriately in who we are in Christ. The result of metamorphosis, of course, one of the results is become more and more like Christ. But another result that Paul points out here is that you prove what the will of God is. That's an incredible statement. Every one of us as believers at one time or another and another and another struggle with knowing God's will, don't we? What is God's will in a particular situation? What is God's will in a particular decision that must be made? What does God want? What should I do? And Paul is saying here that the Christian's ability to ascertain God's will, to know God's will, results from the renewal of the mind. The believer, the transformed believer, is to test and approve what God's will is. Uh, that word to test is dokamadze, which we get the word dokamos, or the noun form is dokamos. It, it means to put to the test. Put to the test for the purpose of approving it and finding that that thing tested meets the specifications that are laid down to put and then put one's approval on it. The word dokamos was used in the refining process of gold and precious metals. Remember, the, 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 the ore is, is boiled and, and heated and melted, and the dross comes to the surface. And then they would skim the dross off, and that which was left was stamped docimus, approved. It's been tested and approved. This is pure gold. And what Paul is saying here is that this testing of God's will... This testing of God's will in any given situation or question that may arise must be an ongoing activity, an ongoing practice. In the Greek, it's a present infinity. That means it's ongoing, ongoing. It's an ongoing practice. And so in every situation, every new situation in which we find ourselves as believers, we must ask, what is God's will in this? What is God's will for me? What does he want me to do? Because each believer here personally stands before God, and we cannot leave this to others, what the decision would be, what God's will for us. And of course, on the one hand, with our fellow believers, we can confidently know God's will in a general sense, can't we? We come together and use his inspired word. We, we listen to the word. We study the word. We read the word. We fellowship t- together. And, and many things are made plain to, as to the will of God. And, and through our corporate worship and our teaching and preaching, our fellowship and, and the study in God's word, we, we can get a pretty good handle on a lot of things. This is God's will. <laughs> this is what he wants us to do. You know, and it really is a fascinating study. Maybe sometimes I'll do a seven-part series on this. Uh, it's a fascinating study to look into God's Word and see where it plainly says, this is God's will. 
We looked at one of those in Sunday school class this morning where it says, this is the will of God for you that you do not get drunk with wine, but what? You be filled with the Spirit. We know that is God's will. And there's something like seven, seven separate times in the New Testament where it explicitly says, this is God's will. If you want to know what God's will is, that's a good place to start. If you want to know what they are, get your Bible out, get your Bible concordance out, get into the Word. That's a good place to start with God's will, where he says several times, this is God's will. And many other things are stated in God's Word that is, we can know that's his will. It is God's will, as we read this morning, that you do not be conformed to this world. But you what? Be transformed by the ruin of your mind. Case closed. That's God's will. And here's the thing about God's will. If you willfully disobey him in something you know to be his will, don't expect him to share his will in other areas of your life. If you're living in disobedience, God is saying, you obey here. Then we'll talk about this other thing. You know, probably a good example of that is, you know, young couples today saying, hey, I think it's okay. We're, we're going to conform to the world and we're going to live together before we get married. And then they wonder, why aren't things going so well? And why does God seem so very far away? Because they're living in disobedience in a very important area of their lives. Case closed. It's, it's God's will. When you know something is God's will, you obey in that. And we discover a lot of God's will from our study together of God's word, what other Christians teach us and stuff, but... Uh, it may be quite another matter to discover what is precisely God's will for your own life in any specific situation. Where I should go to college, who should I marry, what should I do in this specific, you know, specific instance. And yet the outworking of God's will for you in submitting yourself to the leading of God will be in accord with what God has revealed as his will to his children. As we get into the word of God and we put it to the test and say, God, you're, you're telling me to do this, aren't you? And, and you're confirmed in the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants to do. And so as a committed believer in Jesus Christ and following the leading of the Holy Spirit and in the outworking of God's will in our lives individually, we come to the devout realization that the old unfolding of God's will in relation to our life when we obey God and he shows us his will and we say, yeah, God, with your help, I'm going to do that. Or God, with your help, I'm not going to do this, this other thing. And, and then we discover that that is indeed what Paul says is good and is acceptable and perfect. So that you may put it to the test and prove for yourself what the will of God is. And Paul says, then you'll discover that the will of God is, is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You'll discover that it is good. It is good. In other words, it's the right thing. It's the right thing. You discover that it's acceptable. It's acceptable to God. It's acceptable worship of a living sacrifice. And we go, yeah, God accepts this. And then I like the word he adds there. It's perfect. It's perfect. You become living proof that the will of God is good and acceptable and is perfect. 
you know, I've used this illustration before that, you know, I go into the bank and, and the teller asks, well, what can I do for you today? And I say, well, I want to deposit this check and then I have a, a separate check that I just want cashed. And, and she'll tend to say, oh, perfect. You know, we use that word. We throw that word perfect around <laughs> a lot. You know, and it was kind of funny that one time, you know, I'd miscalculated uh, the total on, on the checks. And, and I wanted to say to her, you said it was perfect, so why are you trying to, to correct it now? <laughs> but that's not the perfect that the talking, that, that God's talking about here, the kind of, that somebody will say, well, hey, that's perfect. It is when you give yourself as a living sacrifice to God, he says, it's perfect. It's perfect. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in these things, through your Holy Spirit and through the Word of God, that you are cleansing, sanctifying us, but also, Father, through the renewing of our minds, we gain a better sense of who you are and what your thinking is. The New Testament says that we have the mind of Christ as believers. We've been given the mind of Christ. What an incredible thing, Father. And Father, as we learn more of you, and as you use your word to change us, Father, we thank you that we will more and more walk in the way that you would have us to walk. But also more and more, we will become more like Jesus Christ. We will become more and more conformed to his image. And Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would make that the heart's desire of each one of us, Father. That we would get so sick and tired of the things of the world and the ways of the world and understand the dangers of those things, Lord. That we would desire to walk more and more with you, God. And that we would live a life that you would say that's good, that's acceptable, and that's perfect. And we know that we can only do this, Father, because of your grace, your mercy, because of your Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us. And in hearing that word, perfect, we would fall in humility before you, Lord, and express a doxology of praise and thanksgiving to you. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.